Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week we're coming at you a little early because the draft is upon us. These next three or four days um, pretty much is going to make NFL Draft Twitter meltdown. <laughs> it's going to make me meltdown. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely coming up on us quick. There's lots of stuff to cover. but We wanted to give you an opportunity to dig into what we think the 49ers should do over the course of the week. So we're like, you know what? Let's do this a little early. Uh, and here we are. We're going to answer the questions that we set out to answer at the beginning of this whole uh, experience, thinking about what the hell should the 49ers do. And we've had awesome interviews with, you know, Steve. I'm not even going to try. And I've forgotten it at this point. Oh, there you go. Sure. David, see, David, and I, teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work, my friend. Uh, Jordan was a great interview. Of course, Matt Waldman. All of them have helped us shape the answers that we're coming to over the next uh, over the next episode with the end result of figuring out what the hell the 49ers should do uh, in the draft, at least in the first couple of rounds. And once he gets around five, six, seven, it's like, well, hope the guy turns out uh, because special teams are good. Uh, but that's, that's what we're going to do this episode. But first, let's get to the rundown. Uh, number one. And I think an interesting story overall is that Reuben Foster, uh, the buzz in NFL land is that Reuben Foster was definitely in strong consideration for the 49ers at two overall, but then he proceeded to be an idiot. So he is now falling down the board and no longer an option for the 49ers at two. Yeah, not the first time that he's uh, being an idiot, apparently. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of one of those things. There always seems to be one guy right you know, in kind of the final moments that something negative comes out. Um, really kind of hurts his draft stock, you know, late. So Reuben Foster, I mean, he was somebody that I don't think we were ever really on board with taking it number two. So, uh, you know, in a way from the 49ers perspective, I think this is actually probably a good thing for them. You know, it might uh, kind of keep them out of their own way if he was somebody that they were strongly considering that high in the draft. But yeah, I mean, it seems his his stock is plummeting. I mean, I mean, uh, Lombardi, Michael Lombardi tweeted out yesterday, and this is part of you know, again, the whole thing of like hating this final week leading up to the draft because there's just so much shit out there and it's so hard to know like what to make of, of, of anything and how much stock to put in anything. But he basically said that like hope guys that are the teams that are picking between 33 and 45 at the top of the second round uh, have done their homework on Foster because he's going to be available there. Yeah, that's that's pretty it's pretty wild considering that he is clearly head and shoulders the best off the ball linebacker in the draft. It's not even close. It's basically him and a bunch of other dudes. And for those that are uninitiated, what really happened with Foster was, you know, he most recently failed the drug test because it was a diluted sample. He said it's because he had a food poisoning and drank a lot of Gatorade and Pedialyte and stuff like that. And, you know, he, but then apparently he had also failed drug tests at Alabama in the past. So, you know, this is kind of one of many and, I mean, you know that this is going to happen. You know the con- you know you're going to get drug tested at the combine. So the really anyone who tests positive or does anything you know kind of untoward or weird during the combine, it's like you you got to be kind of on the dumb side. You know this yeah. test is coming. You know it's coming. right. I mean that's that's the thing, right? I think uh, we're obviously in the same uh, boat. I think there in terms of we don't give a fuck if these guys are smoking marijuana, and we think that all of the rules in the NFL around that are pretty fucking dumb. But like it's it's not hard to like just not do that. It's the most important part of your life to Correct. get through this, get a job and then, you know, whatever. At that point, you know, obviously there are guys in the league that can get around it and, and do it smart. Um, yeah. If and, when, when you're getting in trouble for it at this juncture, it's I mean, yeah, you just kind of look like an idiot. And before that, of course, he got sent home during the combine because he yelled at a hospital worker because he had been waiting for a long time. 
I mean, it's it's come on, man. It's it's hospital waits. God, man, I I would hate it if he ever went to like you know a Kaiser Permanente emergency room and like had to wait. He would just blow <laughs> it all up. He just blow it all up. So, Ruben Foster, uh, you know, can't can't say that that I'm gonna miss not drafting you. Uh, the, the second story in the rundown is that Cleveland is still considering Mitchell Trubisky, and apparently the 49ers are too. And to me, this is really just a story to try and drum up interest, trade interest, because if if someone's going to trade, and we'll talk about this during the show as well, but if someone's going to trade with the 49ers, it's going to be because they want a quarterback. And so you want to make people believe that you are indeed going to draft this quarterback um, so that they can trade, so that you can kind of drum up interest for that pick. Yeah, and again, this is one of those things, like, it's hard to really know what to make of it. Um it would be I'll, I'll tell you this, like the, the only thing around this situation that I'm trying so hard not to do is just a bit. No, I don't want to pay attention to any of it because I don't want there to be this part of me that gets my hopes up that Miles Garrett could actually be there at uh, number two when we select like the rest of it. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, it's it's smokescreen, right? Like or at the very least, I don't think that there's enough there that's concrete to where we should really put a lot of stock into it. Right. It's just kind of. The, the, again, the week before the draft, going to be a lot of things that come out that um, don't actually end up playing out that way come Thursday night when all that that comes up. But yeah, I, I just don't want to at this juncture, like let any part of me get my hopes up for Miles Garrett. And I think Tim Kawakami said it best when he was like, OK, so John Lynch has basically made has basically stopped all leaks coming out of 4949 Centennial. And all of a sudden now we're supposed to believe the leaks that are coming out. I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, can't have a cake and eat it too. Can't do both. <laughs> and so, so yeah. So in, in other news though, Glenn Coffey unretired championship championship. <laughs> this oh is God, the missing dude. piece. Glenn Coffey, if you're not familiar, was drafted in the third round in what? Like 2010. Uh, I think it was 2009. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Good I saw uh, some tweet about how he had, uh, how many snaps he had. Um, yeah, 2009, in, in he was drafted third round, and he promptly retired during the Mike Singletary era. He just walked out of the locker room and said, I'm out. God has a higher purpose for me. God has a higher purpose for me. So he joined the military. He was a paratrooper. Um, he got, didn't he get like arrested on a gun charge at some point? Uh, he, I think he became a reverend. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I really remember about the whole situation was that he, yeah, joined the military was like an army ranger. Um, yeah, that's pretty much. And now he's a thirty. He's a thirty-year-old running back uh, that is trying to get back into the league. So you know what? Good luck to you, my friend. Good luck to you. Uh, who gets signed first, Adrian Peterson or Glenn Coffee? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's going to be almost certainly Glenn Coffee. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's that's pretty much the, the end of the rundown. Um, the, the only other story that we've got is about our draft coverage because on Thursday night, we are going to do Volume 2 of Drunk Prospecting. Volume 2 of Drunk Prospecting is coming at you on Thursday night after the 49ers make their selection. David and I are going to get rip-roaring drunk one more time and YouTube the uh, basically the breakdown of our first-round pick, uh, whomever that may be. So tune in. It will be live broadcasted on YouTube. We'll post the link, uh, and and yeah, we're gonna get after it. And I've I've taken Friday off of work in anticipation, so it's gonna be like that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I I will say setting a personal goal. We're not throwing up this time. We're we're gonna fall. <laughs> we're gonna fall short 
of throwing up on the internet uh, live. So yeah, hopefully, and and I think maybe you know with this particular one, like people are going to be a little bit more interested in getting actual football things out of it, considering it'll be the number one pick. Um, so maybe slightly less drunk prospecting. Um, but yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, their jackets. There are there, there are, are going to be jackets. Uh, there are indeed jackets involved. involved. We'll say nothing more than that at this time. Correct. Um, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm excited for it. All right, so let's get into what the hell we think the 49ers should do. We went after four or five general questions about this draft, and we explored them over the last three episodes. If you haven't listened to those three episodes, I think they will provide some great context for what it is that we're going to talk about here. So even if you haven't and you're listening to this right now, go back and listen to those a little bit later because I do think the interviews with Matt, Steve, and Jordan are, are really, really good. But we went out to, to answer a couple of questions, and we said, all right, what are the strengths and weaknesses for this draft class? Should the 49ers be looking to move out of number two? And if so, what kind of reasonable compensation should they expect? If the Niners are forced to stay at two or they choose to stay at two, who the hell should they go after as long as Miles Garrett doesn't fall? Because if Miles Garrett does, then the answer is Miles fucking Garrett. <laughs> should the Niners be looking for a quarterback of the future in the draft? And finally, who are our draft crushes? So the draft crushes will kind of be peppered through the show, but we're really going to get after answering these questions to figure out what the 49ers draft strategy should be this year. So first off, David, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this draft class as, you know, kind of is generally accepted by everyone so far? Yeah, I I think and we're going to use, you know, PFF's big board here in terms of just kind of looking at the number of players at the top. Right. But I I think when you look at these positions of strength, it's the numbers may differ from board to board, depending on where you want to go and look. But the positions themselves, I think, are are kind of generally agreed upon to be really strong. And and I think that starts with the edge class Um, again, 20 players. So a fifth of the, the top 100 on PFF's board is edge rushers. Um, so that's definitely a, a big position of strength there. Defensive back, corner and safety. I mean, we, we again, heard Jordan say that this was the best safety class that he's ever seen. You have 12 safeties in the top 100, um, 18 cornerbacks in, in the top 100 there, which is just kind of like an absurd number. I think we're going to see a lot of guys go, uh, you, you know, in the first round there. And then you look at, uh, you know, going back to the interview we did with Matt Waldman, and I think running back and tight end uh, are, are kind of the skill positions that seem to be very strong this year. Um, tight end, especially, I mean, it's just kind of uh, a rare, absurd class where you just have a bunch of really athletic guys. I think there are like seven or eight guys that uh, are over 80 percent in, in spark percentile. Um, and, and so just a lot of talent at both of those positions as well. Now, when you think of weaknesses, you look at positions like linebacker, where there's only four players on the PFF top 100. And we talked about Ruben Foster a little bit right now, but it's basically Ruben Foster and everyone else. And, and that's kind of how it breaks down and everyone else has their has their strengths and weaknesses, but it's just basically one dude and then like three other dudes. And that's about it out of the top 100 for offensive line. You're looking at four offensive tackles, three guards and one center. Uh, and so this isn't really a good, a, a rich offensive line class. This is kind of a developmental offensive line class. Maybe, Gil, yeah, Gil Brandt called it like the worst offense, maybe the worst offensive line class ever. Yeah, um, I mean, this is basically is the Seattle Seahawks of offensive line classes. <laughs> like this is where Seattle's going to load up on offensive linemen. I can I can see it now. They're just going to pick all of the shitty dudes that are in this trap because why not? Uh, and then you've got interior defensive linemen. There's only two in the top 50 
nine overall in the top 100. So interior defensive linemen, you're thinking your nose tackles, your traditional defensive tackles. You know, there's a lot of edge, but there's not a lot of interior. So these are the positions where unless you're going to get that top guy or unless you are going after something that's developmental in rounds five, six and seven, it really isn't a glut or a strength in the class. It's not something you're going to want to go after. And and lastly, I'll call out quarterbacks here specifically, not because it's necessarily a huge weakness in the class, but it's probably not a class where you're going to find a lot of talent at the top. Even when you think of the whether or not you think it's, you know, Trubisky or Deshaun Watson or Kaiser, um, you know, those are kind of the names that have been tossed around up in the top of the draft. By and large, those aren't traditionally considered first round talent type of quarterbacks. You, you think of what, just because you've got quarterbacks and they're the best at their position doesn't necessarily mean that they're like going to be comparable to someone like a Jameis Winston or an Andrew Luck. So even if you do have them late in the first round, it's not going to be this kind of like, shit, we have to sell out to get this quarterback at the top of everything kind of, uh, kind of draft. And when you, when you think about the, the talent prospects there, the, the way the Niners are, well, I guess we'll get into this in a little bit, but the way the Niners picks fall down, it just makes it really difficult to go and get your quarterback of the future in that kind of, you know, maybe expect them to start year two type of thing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Steve mentioned something along the lines of there, there's not really kind of that transcendent scheme, transcendent type of guy at the top, right? Well, like when you thought of Andrew Luck coming in, like it was, oh, my God, this is the best prospect since Elway. And, you know, it really didn't matter where he went. You knew that he was going to be a good player. I think when you look at the top guys, it, it's not necessarily that they're as weak as some of the classes that we've seen recently, but um, it's I think where they go and, and kind of the the team that surrounds them is going to be very important. And I think uh, pretty much all of them, too, seem to be guys that would benefit, you know, from some time on the bench. So, uh, yeah, it's again, not necessarily the weakest class, but there's not any of those guys that you're really just kind of jumping after to take at the top, I think. So if that's kind of lays the groundwork for what the strength of the class is, you're looking at edge, defensive, back, tight end, running back. And the weaknesses being linebacker, offensive line, interior defensive line, and then quarterback, depending on how you look at it. What the hell should the Niners do um, at two? Should they be looking at moving out of two? And if so, what kind of reasonable compensation should they expect? So I think we answered this one pretty affirmatively uh, on the last episode. I mean, Jordan said, uh, I think, three or four times over the course of that hour that was just like, man, this is the worst draft to be at number two. Like, it, it really said is just a terrible thing. spot. Yeah. Steve said something very similar. He was like, I don't, I, number two is the one spot I don't want to be at because there's a clear number one, Miles Garrett. And then it's a bunch of dudes that, like, you could get anywhere between two and maybe six. <laughs> yeah, it's and it was, it was funny because Steve, you know, it does uh, typically does the mock drafts at, at PFF. And, and usually, you know, there's a point when you're going through and doing a mock draft where, you get kind of towards the latter half of the top 10. And that's when things start to become difficult, right? A lot of times you can line up a very good player with a very clear need on some of those teams in the top five, six, seven, whatever it is. And now that kind of point where the draft just becomes completely uncertain is at number two. Uh, And it's just like, okay, after Miles Garrett's gone, like what the hell do we do? Because there are probably 15 guys, you know, in that next tier that, all are similar caliber players and, and uh, none of them are necessarily guys that you would usually want to take it to, but you know, it, it you're not going to get a, a, a much different player from a, a talent perspective, you know, whether you're picking two in this draft or whether you're picking in the middle of the first round. So let's look at some historical trades and see exactly what these types of packages could look like. 
If you look at the Browns and Eagles trade last year, the Browns got number eight overall. They got a third rounder, number 77 overall, a fourth rounder, 100 overall. And then they got a 2017 first rounder and a 2018 second rounder. And that's to move from eight to two. Now, the RG3 trade, uh, two to eight, sorry. Um, So the RG3 trade, you've got the Rams getting number six overall, a second rounder, the 39th overall, which I mean, basically like a high, like a a really, really late first, a a 2013 first rounder and a 2014 first rounder. And, And so that's like, I mean, that's, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, and the Redskins, of course, you know, got the number two overall. So the, dropping down four spots, two to six, which, you know, it's 2012, but you've got a, a, a kind of comparable move there. You're looking at a second rounder, a first rounder, and another first rounder. So when you think of teams that are looking down or really looking up, right, looking to trade up, who are the likely teams that you think could give us a haul similar to this? And why would they want to move? So this is really the tough spot, right? Like is, is, of course, when you talk about trading down, like a lot of times it's great in theory, but there, there has to be somebody willing to move up and somebody willing to move up for. And, and I think uh, it really makes the most sense, you know, if you're going to give up that sort of compensation. And even if, you know, the 49ers don't quite get, you know, the, the same type of haul that, say, the Browns got last year, that the Rams got in the RG3 deal, even if they fall a little bit short of that, it's still a lot, right? You're still talking about probably, you know, three, four picks that you're going to get in return. Those picks are probably going to be day one, day two type picks, whether they're this year or whether they're in a future season. Um, so it's a lot. It, it's a lot to give up. And, and a, a lot of times I think it's you can really only justify giving up that sort of compensation if you believe that you're about to go up and get your franchise quarterback, right? It's hard to to justify moving up to take a safety or a linebacker or a running back at number two, right? And giving up all of those uh, other picks there that, that can potentially help your team. So but Leonard Fournette's awesome. <laughs> oh my God. He's Adrian Peterson. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's just like, uh, so it, it's hard, right? Like you, you have to identify, I think then guy teams that could be looking for a quarterback. And I think it starts with number three, which is the bears. And I think they are less of a candidate to move up from three to two um, as they are like teams that are slightly below them, you know, maybe, uh, in the back half of the top 10 or just outside of it, they could say, OK, the Bears look like we, you know, we, we think that they might be interested in one of these quarterbacks at the top. We need to get ahead of them to ensure that we get our guy. And so the first candidate that really I think you look at is potentially the Jets at number six. Um, I, I think that would uh, definitely make some sense. I mean, they seem to be just every year uh, in the market for, for getting a quarterback. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just where they're at right now. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, everybody wants to point to Cleveland at, at number 12 because they could potentially, you know, they, they want you want to throw out the scenario where they get Miles Garrett and the quarterback, right? Because that's what we're hearing over the last couple of weeks is like, oh, there, there's kind of this split within the organization. Some of them want Garrett. Some of them want a quarterback. Um, the owner's starting to wonder when they're going to get their quarterback, that type of thing. And so by moving up from 12 to 2, they can get both, right? They get Garrett and they get the quarterback of their choosing, they have the ammo, but you've also then understanding or you also understand why it is that the 49ers are saying we want Mitchell Trubisky because then that also lights a fire under Cleveland's ass if indeed they do want to get both Trubisky and Miles Garrett. Yeah, and, and that one, um, you know, for me personally is a little bit tough to see. I, I just think knowing how Cleveland operates and, and all the moves that they've been making and kind of that analytics driven 
approach that they're taking, you know, trading up and giving up a bunch of picks to go get one guy, even if that that player is a quarterback, uh, just seems to go against kind of everything that they uh, are, are doing to build their team. So I don't know that that makes a ton of sense. But obviously, again, they have the ammunition. Um, you, you can kind of construct uh, a scenario or an argument for why they might want to do that. But I don't know how much sense it makes. And then I think the two other teams that you kind of look at that uh, one of which we've seen rumors for. So this one really wouldn't be a move for a quarterback. That's Carolina at number eight. Um, The rumor there is that they kind of love Fournette and that they would want to move up and grab him potentially. And And this for them is a situation where they're thinking it's they're a piece away. Right. That they're okay with giving up some cap. They're they're okay with giving up a draft pick, a future, maybe first rounder or second rounder, because if we've got a running back, then we're back in the NFC championship game or we're back in the Super Bowl. So a similar kind of argument to a quarterback where, you know, it's valuable enough that you want to go and get it. They think we've got a franchise quarterback. We've got a defense. Maybe we're going after, you know, the one piece or the one player that we think is at the top of our board and we can get him at two. Yeah, I think it it actually is in a way similar to the situation with Dallas, right? Like uh, if we kind of just for a moment set aside the argument uh, of that positional value and whether any running back should go that high and all that sort of thing that we've talked about uh, a few points here, like he really is Fournette is is an ideal fit for what they're doing in Carolina. Like that's the type of run game that he would really need to to go to to excel. Um, and, and so you could see a scenario where, yeah, like he goes in there is is just great right off the bat because of that fit and adds this other element to all of the the sort of, uh, you know, option packages that they have with Cam Newton back there. So uh, you, you could see him just going there and fitting in perfectly and kind of t- allowing them to take their offense to, to kind of the next level. So um, that's, yeah, I guess the, the argument for why they would want to do it. I think the other team to keep an eye on um, and again, whether they are willing to trade up that high to make this happen, I don't know. But I think the Cardinals at number 13 are, are a team that definitely should be in the market for a quarterback. I mean, Carson Palmer didn't look great last year, um, you know, kind of started to show some of those signs of decline that we thought were going to happen maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, and you have to wonder how much time he has left. So, you know, it, I think there's a very realistic chance that this is his last year in Arizona, right? That, that last year as a starter and so you could definitely see them going out and trying to get uh, the, the heir apparent to Carson Palmer, letting him sit on the bench, letting the, this, this first round pick sit on the bench for a year and then, uh, you know, being able to insert and kind of move on next season. Yeah. So you've got uh, uh, basically those are the teams that could trade up to number two. And th- the question is really about the market. Because when you're trading for a quarterback and there's quarterbacks that are desirable, right? I think you said it exactly right, David, when you said not only do you have to have teams willing to move, but you have to have a player that's willing to be moved up for. And while there may not necessarily be that player in this draft, right? Trubisky, you may think to yourself, well, we could go after Kaiser or we could go after Deshaun Watson. We could wait till they fall. You know, Leonard Fournette maybe is not someone that you think, okay, because of positional value, it doesn't, it's not going to cost me as much. So let's say that the haul is not going to be as good as, you know, a couple of day one or day two picks. The question is really, what's the least amount of compensation you would accept to move out of two? And how far would you go down? Let's say that the trade partner is the Jets and they want to move up and get ahead of the Bears. What's the least amount you'd be willing to expect to move down to six? Willing to accept, sorry. To to six, um, I think that, you know, something like, a second round pick this year and a second round and maybe and maybe like two picks next year. Right. So like a second and a fourth or something like that, like that type of thing, I think um, 
would probably be kind of the floor for for what I'd be looking at. Like if they manage to get, uh, you know, I, again, because we, we've talked about a couple times now, like day two picks, I think, in this draft are going to be incredibly valuable. Like I think that's generally the case, like second rounders are, are uh, very valuable pretty much every single draft season. But this year with the number of players, you know, we talked about the top, all of those guys uh, that you have at some of these positions of strength and, and they can't all go in the first round. And there's going to be some of those players at positions that aren't as strong that are still going to go. You know, teams are going to get desperate and still take a tackle or take an interior defensive lineman because they think that that's the biggest need for them. So you're going to see some some really good players at some key positions, you know, like edge, like cornerback that are available on on day two. So I think if they can get another pick there and then maybe get another couple picks uh, for next year's draft, which, you know, again, could be used is is kind of ammo potentially to move up and get a quarterback, you get know, quarterback. If they finish with yep. a, yeah, a little bit better record. So maybe next year they're the team that's picking in that six to eight to ten range um, and, and need some ammunition to get up there in the top five to, to select a quarterback. I think you start looking at those type of picks. Once you get to Cleveland and Arizona, that's where you're talking about a, a, it takes it's going to take quite a bit more, I think, to yeah. move up from 12 to 13. Once you get out of 13, once you get into like 15, 17, 18, 20, you a don't have teams that need quarterbacks. There's a reason why they're picking in the bottom half of the draft. And, and two, it's just too expensive to move up. It's going to take too damn much to move up in order to get to the number two spot. So once you start getting to Cleveland and, and, and the, the Cardinals and even Carolina to a certain degree, now you're really talking about at the very least kind of a future first round pick. Even if you don't get that first round pick, you're going to, get, you're going to swap first round picks this year. Maybe you get a second round pick, but that's where the future first rounder really begins to get on the table, which is why I think that it's, it's less likely for Cleveland or the Cardinals to, to move up because of the cost and because of the quality of player you're going to get it too. So overall, I think the Jets are probably likely the Jets are the team we hope trades up. Yeah. That's going that's going to give us the I think that's the target. Or the Panthers but, too. I think yeah, I think the Panthers, you know, just because for some reason they have a a player in mind, you know, is likely They want to be they want to be the 15th SEC team. They're going to go full <laughs> SEC. They just Fournette <laughs> Can you imagine the one-two punch? Just go full Auburn offense. Bring in uh, Gus Malzahn as the offensive coordinator. Just do it. Dude, I, I mean, I'll tell you what. I wouldn't, uh, well, I don't think that would be a good move at all. Uh, I sure as hell wouldn't want to be uh, it, it, responsible for trying to tackle like Leonard Fournette or Cam them. Newton. Yeah, you get like in a zone <laughs> read or something, and it's just like, fuck this. Yeah, that's not what you want to see. But yeah, and, and I think those those are the two likeliest trade partners. And And at that point, you're looking at the Jets, you know, two second rounders. I think Carolina, you're looking at, you know, kind of, two second rounders or maybe a second and a first. And that's about what, what it would take. But even, and, and we know the 49ers have created their own trade value chart. This is, I guess what Prague Marate does for fun. Uh, he's just sits on the toilet and creates, you know, Excel spreadsheets. At least that's how I imagine him. But the, the so we know the Niners have their own value chart, but e- even with the, even with those kinds of scenarios on the table, we really don't think that a trade is likely to happen. At least I, I don't. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, while I mean, it's the best move, <laughs> I just don't think that's what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, it, it's just hard to find, you know, especially when you... Because I think the the right scenario, right, the one that you can most easily talk yourself into is Cleveland. But for me, again, because of the way that they approach things, I just... I, I don't think that's nearly as likely as some other people out there do. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's hard to find that match of that that match of team and a player worth you know getting up there. But you know, to again, I don't think I think it's a greater than zero chance. You know, last year we everybody was kind of yeah. saying the same thing, right, about those top two picks, and everybody had a, a probably even worse opinion of the quarterbacks at the top last year. Um, and both of them got traded, right? Both of them got traded. Both of them got a big haul and, and teams moved up. So, you know, if a a team, all it takes is one to talk themselves into one of these quarterbacks being their franchise guy and, and they'll make it happen. So assuming the Niners kind of go down the likely path and they stay at number two, what's the best non miles Garrett direction for them to go? So I think I mean, so let's first look at, I think, realistic options, right? Because, again, we talked about there's there's really a, a pretty large tier of players that I think from an overall talent perspective are, are very similar. And you could theoretically like construct a case for them to go number two. So I think for the 49ers specifically, looking at the options that they we, we want, might want to pick from here, obviously Solomon Thomas, he's the, the most heavily mocked guy to the 49ers. Everybody kind of assumes that that's going to happen. He's an option. I think at corner, you know, most people have Marshawn Lattimore at the top of their their cornerback board. But, you know, one of the, one of the top corners there, I think you can make an argument for. Obviously, the safety pair uh, is another very popular one. Malik Hooker, or Jamal Adams. And then I think Jonathan Allen is one that's lost a little bit of steam. You know, people are kind of worried about his shoulders. And, and there's a lot of talk that he'll slip kind of into the teens, maybe. Um, but, you know, Jordan Plocker, when he was on, that, he, that would have been his pick uh, at number two if you were making the call there. So, I think those are, are probably the most likely. Um, I think there's maybe another edge player or two that you might be able to, uh, again, make an argument for. Derek Barnett was one that that Steve mentioned and, and that's, um, you know, PFF's been really high on. I think Carl Lawson wouldn't be all that crazy there just because of the fit at Leo and, and really what you asked that position to do. Um, so I think those are the pool, the small pool of players that they really are going to be looking at at number two. So let's talk about Leo for a second, because this is a position that's going to be new to the 49ers this year. It's not going to be new in general. The the Leo was really a derivative of the elephant position, which is what made Charles Haley famous in in San Francisco. And remember, Pete Carroll was the defensive coordinator in San Francisco when they won the Super Bowl. So this is really a derivative of that of that player. But Pete Carroll, who is basically the defense we're copying off of, is has some he's talked a lot about the Leo position. And so he's got a quote that helps describe what the Leo does. And this is going to help frame the discussion for really who we think should go at at number two. But he says, quote, the best pass rusher on the team is usually the defensive end to the open side of the field that puts him on the quarterback's blind side and makes him a C gap player in this defense. We often align him wider than this in order to give him a better angle of attack and allow him to play in space. We align him a yard outside of the offensive tackle most of the time. He has to play C-gap run support, but at the same time, he is rushing the passer like it's third and 10. He has to be able to close down. However, if the tackle blocks down on him, um, he has to be one of your best football players. Sorry, that sentence was weird. Uh, (laughs) Size does not matter as much. Uh, We want an athletic player who can move around. So they're looking for athletes. They're looking for someone who is going to have to do kind of some C-gap run support, but their primary responsibility is rushing the passer. And they're going to kind of cinch down that gap uh, if the tackle blocks down. So when you look at that kind of framework of players, this is where you're looking at, you're not scared away from players that are necessarily undersized. You're not necessarily scared away from like the Bruce Irvins of the world, for example. Um, Because really what you want this player to do is rush the passer first and foremost 
and be an athletic player that can move around. So you look at someone who ranks highly uh, in athleticism. You look at someone who is an okay run defender, but really they're going to get after the passer. And, and so that's why Carl Lawson to you kind of sticks out. Yeah, I think he he seems to kind of fit that mold, right? The couple things that, that I really pull out from that quote are, you know, one, again, this is the to the open side of the field is where they're getting, which means uh, kind of away from the tight end in your standard formations. Um, he's going to be on the weak side. And, and most of the time when teams run the football, they're running to the strong side, right? They're running to the tight end side. Um, and, and so this guy is a backside run defender. It's not as important for him to be able to, like, for instance, hold up at the point of attack and, and be able to take on blocks and, you know, worry about taking on double teams. Like, that's not really going to be his responsibility on most snaps. It might happen every once in a while. You know, teams definitely do run to the weak side, uh, but it, it's it's not his primary responsibility. And, and you, the other part is like that, again, rushing the passer all the time like it's third and ten. Normally, you know, down and distance is really going to determine you know, the approach of the player to begin the snap. You know, you can't have guys for most players on your defense in your front on first and 10, for instance, like they can't just pin their ears back and look to get after the quarterback because that's going to leave them in a bad position defending the run. This guy has the opportunity because of his his run responsibilities does have the opportunity to just kind of pin his ears back. You know, I think uh, Robert Sala said something along the lines of you want a guy out there running around with his hair on fire, right? Like, this is somebody that that just needs to be a very, very good athlete. Rushing the passer needs to be his best trait. And so I think that opens up, you know, uh, a couple of other players that are weaker. Carl Lawson, the thing that, you know, he gets kind of dinged for is defending the run. He hasn't really been a consistent, you know, strong at the point of attack type of run defender. And I think in this particular role, that's not a really a big problem for him. So this is why Solomon Thomas, I think, has also been mocked a lot to the 49ers is because he is, in terms of a physical comp, basically Michael Bennett. Same type of size, same type of weight, and Solomon Thomas has a lot of athleticism. The problem with Solomon Thomas is that it's a projection. You're projecting him to be an edge guy because he didn't really play edge at Stanford. So that's not necessarily bad. It's just something that, you know, is a bit of a variable that you're introducing into the process where and projection is good, right? If you can project a guy to a spot, that's a good thing. Alden Smith didn't, you know, didn't play outside linebacker before he got to the 49ers, but they projected him and it worked out fairly well for, you know, a season and a half or two uh, before he decided to, you know, go full Alden. So the projection isn't inherently bad, but when you think of what the 49ers should do it too, I think you really begin to look at what positions are worth that pick, what things do you need, and I think that really narrows it down to these areas. It narrows it down to an edge rusher. It narrows it down to a defensive back, especially one that helps you in the transition to a new system, and and that's about it, which is why I think, to, to your point earlier, we weren't too high on Reuben Foster at two because it's not necessarily a position that's going to change your defense. It's not a position that's necessarily going to make you go, oh, wow, that's, that really helps everything else fall into place. It's like, cool, it's a linebacker. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, I had this conversation with somebody on Twitter the other day, and, and it's why kind of positional value needs to be part of your, your thought process, part of your decision-making process when, when you're trying to select players here. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to the contract value and, and the positional value, you know, in terms of how the league views those. So with Ruben Foster as the example, right, if you take him at number two, the contract that you're going to give him, you know, which is about 29, 30 million guaranteed, I believe, for the number two overall pick this year, 
that's going to make him one of the highest paid players at his position. So basically the only thing that he can really do in your best case scenario is live up to that contract, right? You're never going to get excess value. The best case is that he's going to be properly valued and you're going to pay him what he's worth. Whereas if you take an edge rusher and you look at that, you know, 29, 30 million, that's not really that much for an edge rusher, you know, especially once you move on three, four years down the road. I mean, that's his cap hits probably going to be, you know, around like the 20th or, or so for his position. And so you have an opportunity if you hit on that player to get a lot of excess value. You're getting a guy, you know, if, if all of a sudden you find your next Malik uh, or uh, Khalil Mack, excuse me, or Von Miller or, or that kind of elite edge defender there. Well, now you're you're getting all of this extra value because you're not paying that player anything near what he's worth. And you can take that savings and kind of spread it around to the rest of your roster and, and be able to improve other positions. So and then again, on the, the worst case side, if that player doesn't work out, well, it's not as big of a deal because you're not, again, paying him at the top of his position. You're already going to spend a pretty significant chunk of your cap on that position anyway. So it doesn't put you out as much as if, you know, you take a linebacker and then all of a sudden he doesn't work out. Well, now you're stuck playing this guy, paying this guy like a star and he's not doing anything for you. So it has to factor into the conversation at the very least. So that's the pool of players we're pulling from for number two overall, right? Solomon Thomas, Marshawn Lattimore, Malik Hooker, Jamal Adams, Jonathan Allen, Carl Lawson. Those are, that's the pool. And so really then the question becomes, should there be a quarterback in there? Should the 49ers be looking for a quarterback of the future in this draft, um, whether that be at two or or even a little bit later? Um, and and I think by and large, and we've we've said this before. I think the resounding answer is nah, not really. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think um, you know this is probably one we can move on from fairly quickly. I mean, we spent you know again that entire episode with Steve uh, talking about this quarterback class, and I just don't really think from where the 49ers are at from a roster construction standpoint. But it just makes sense. There's not a, a guy that you're just like, yes, OK, this is wh- where I really want to hinge my future on one of these players. And you look at the strengths elsewhere. Right. And you see that this this awesome edge class this awesome defensive back class. And and it just I, I don't think makes a lot of sense for them needing players at basically every position to to look at a you know more of a position of weakness rather than going after one of these stronger areas of the draft. Now, the other thing that we've been hearing is that the love for Deshaun Kaiser in the second round is apparently very real. And th- there are two things there. One is I hope to God Deshaun Kaiser is not there at the top of the second round because I, I want the decision to be made easy for this fr- for this team to, to not have to pick him. Just it, I don't think that makes a ton of sense. Second, I think, you know, when you think of what it is that you give up to to get a quarterback in the second round. You're talking about based on the way the draft is going to fall, maybe getting the third, fourth or fifth best quarterback in the class at the top of the second round. And based on the quality of the quarterback class that we talked about with Steve, I just don't think that that player is going to project to be phenomenally awesome. When you think of the the pool of players at other positions like edge or cornerback that are going to be there at the top of the second round, those are true. Those players can turn into true superstars. Those players could be defensive, game-changing players that are really going to give you, a, a, you know, something in a position of need for years to come. Whereas you hope that second-round quarterback projects to, you know, do something okay. And, and so I think the opportunity cost of taking a quarterback in the second round is is just it's too high 
at that point, you think about taking a quarterback in the, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth round. You're talking about your Brad Kaya's, uh, you know, and those types of players. Because I even think Nathan Peterman, who's the guy that I would hope the Niners could get in the third or fourth round, I think that dude's going to be gone. You know, like it's just it's stupid how early these quarterbacks are going to go. And and if they do go that early, that means that positions that means that players at other positions are going to fall. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it happens every single year. Like we we know that quarterbacks are going to go higher than expected, um, even in a relatively weak class. And Just ask Blaine Gabbert. Yeah, and we know that some of those, you know, the other positions that we mentioned is is weaknesses, right? Those, especially the interior D linemen and offensive linemen, you know, offensive line is an important position, right? Teams that need offensive linemen not all of them are just going to flat out ignore that position, right? You're going to see some guys, you know, take some of those tackles in the first round. You know, you're going to see some of the interior guys start to go probably on day two. So uh, that, you know, causes the board to fall to, to kind of push some of these really talented defenders down and, and give you an opportunity to, I think, really, you know, for the 49ers, again, needing everything, um, it, it doesn't make sense to reach to me into those positions of weakness. They, they have an opportunity, I think, to, if they play things right and things fall, um, you know, the, the right way for them to kind of remake this defense and, and kind of revamp it overnight. So, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the direction that, that I really want to see them go here. So based on the strengths and weaknesses of this class and based on how it is that, that everything has fallen down, it, presuming that they don't trade out, which positions should the 49ers target and at which points in the draft should they target them? So this is where we begin to get into the kind of combinations at two and 34 that we think make a ton of sense because I, I do think that those those picks are going to be the the core of what it is the 49ers do. I think really the first three or four rounds are really going to be where the 49ers are going to get a lot of the players that we're going to know and love for, for years. Once you start getting into rounds five, six, and seven, that's where you get your special teamers. That's where you get your developmental prospects, the, the players that you hope turn into something. But if you draft someone in the fifth round and all they ever are is a uh, special teams player and a role player, you probably drafted okay. Like that, that's, that's exactly what you want out of your fifth, sixth, and seventh rounders. I think rounds one through four where you're hoping for some kind of production and participation. So when we think of what we think the 49ers should do at, one, at two and at 34, it's some combination of defensive back and or edge player. These are positions of need for the 49ers. I mean, and I mean, everything's a position of need for the 49ers, but these two are positions of need both because they're moving to a new system and because an edge rusher is the premier position on defense and the one thing a team needs to really put them over the edge. And when, I mean, you, even Atlanta, right, for the one half of the Super Bowl that they won, they, they were after Tom Brady. They were in his face. They were hitting him. You can make the greatest quarterback in NFL history, arguably for 49ers fans, um, make him look like not the greatest by continuing to hit him. Edge is important, right? And because of the nature of the NFL and the nature of the changing defensive scheme, some combination of these two players is really what we think the 49ers should go after at two and at 34. So there's going to be two different combinations that we think work here. And David, hit us with the first combination. So I, I kind of like the idea of going with an edge defender first. You know, I think you look at a lot of uh, kind of historical draft data. I think uh, Justice Mosqueda has done a really good job of, um, you know, kind of analyzing edge players and, and kind of predicting where they should be able to go. And, and, you know, talking about the importance of 
athleticism and all of that. And really kind of one of his big takeaways is that edge players are like quarterbacks, right? Like you need to take them at the top of the first round. And and that's where you find your most successful guys. And the further that you go on, it's less likely that those players are going to turn out. Um, and while that's generally true, you know, uh, across all positions, I think when you look at quarterback and edge, you know, the, the kind of disparity there is a lot greater. So I think to find your kind of elite pass rushers, it's not very often that you're going to stumble into that guy in the third, fourth round, even in a deep class like this. Like you can find productive guys there. You can find rotational players, guys that can come in and, you know, be, be essentially like a, a 40 percent snap guy and, and get after the passer and, and do OK. But your kind of top end, you know, really special pass rushers go at the top of the first round. So I kind of lean more that direction. And I, and I think, you know, again, trying to find, you know, maybe that guy in this draft is is a little bit difficult. You know, I think Solomon Thomas, if they believe that he can make that conversion, you know, and, and play Leo, I think that makes sense. I kind of have started late, you know, really leaning towards Carl Lawson being a potential option there just because you look at the weaknesses. And again, they don't, I think, really matter quite as much in this particular scheme and how he would be utilized. So I think that makes uh, some sense to me. And then I would pair that up with, I, I think, a pair of cornerbacks that I've really started to like, uh, and, and probably two of my draft crushes, Kevin King and Akella Witherspoon, guys that we talked about uh, with Jordan last week and, and have really um, been very kind of productive players. They're three-year starters. They're they're big, tall, kind of uh, you know long, got the long arms, really athletic guys that you like to see in this scheme at cornerback. Um, both of them were in, in you know 91st percentile or higher spark scores. So there's just a, a lot to like, I think, with those two players in this scheme in particular. And so I think if either one of those guys happens to be available at 34, that combination, I think, makes a lot of sense to me. So edge DB would be th- that kind of preferred combo for David. I think the DB edge combo also makes a ton of sense. And when I'm looking at that DB edge combo, I'm looking at drafting Malik Hooker at second overall. And then whomever is the best edge player available at 34 because I think there's going to be a ton of them. Carl Lawson could actually still be there at 34. Then you've got TJ Watt, Jordan Willis, Derek Rivers, Tack McKinley. These are all players that are going to give you some flavor of edge rusher. And what you're able to do is you're able to make the, you're, you're able to solidify safety for a while. And we know that safety in the scheme is kind of a big deal. There's a reason that Richard Sherman is, is even considered to be traded by Seattle. There's a reason why Richard Sherman looked kind of human when, uh, when his safety went down, and that's because Earl Thomas is really what makes the back half of that defense go. And Jimmy Ward may be that guy. He may be that guy, but we're not sure. That would be another projection. And I think if you make Malik Hooker the pick, then what you do is you put Malik uh, Hooker back there at safety. His range is absurd. And he is exactly the, the like what feels like the prototypical safety for this defense. And Jimmy Ward can still play another valuable part of this defense, which is going to be that slot role, that slot corner. And he provides immediate depth for that safety if Malik Hooker does go down because injuries are a concern for Malik Hooker. So you solidify your defensive secondary and you're still able to get a quality edge rusher because of the depth of talent at this position in this draft. I mean, if you have, let's say Carl Lawson's off the board because the NFL is wise to the Lawson train as David is, and you're left choosing between someone like TJ Watt, Jordan Willis, Derek Rivers, or Tack McKinley. That's probably how I would rank them myself in terms of order. 
But let's say you do end up getting TJ Watt or Jordan Willis. You're still getting high athletic individuals that have have produced at the at their college level that can fit this scheme. And, and so I think you kind of get the best of both worlds there. Once you if, if you don't go Adams or Hooker, then you're thinking of other kind of safeties like Buda Baker or something like that. And I just don't know that those necessarily are, are as good of a fit because you're getting the number one player at a position at hook with Hooker. And you're not getting the number one player at a position kind of anywhere else. So that's that's what I've been leaning towards more and more over the last week after having talked to Jordan, after having talked to a couple of other people and, and doing some research myself is just, you know, I think that that feels like the combination for me based on on what it is that we know now. Yeah, I, th- I think I would be I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be disappointed if Malik Hooker was the guy at number two. Right. I think, you know, there is a chance while. Again, the, the the positional value thing is, I think, very appropriate there. So I, like, was gonna, I was going to ask you about that, too, because so Malik Hooker, based on, again, we're looking at a guaranteed contract of about 29, 30 mil is basically what this pick is going to cost us. That contract puts Malik Hooker just outside of top 10 money for safeties. And like it puts him basically at like 11th, I think, uh, is what it comes down to. And well, from, and a, that from mean, a guaranteed standpoint, that would be basically right in line with Eric Berry. Now, his yeah. cap hits with how they structure those rookie deals that they kind of escalate. So he's not going to be his cap hit in any given season um, isn't going to be quite that high. But it's going to be, you know, he's typically going to be up there because you're going to have the, the way that they do is you've got base salary and bonus and both of them are fully guaranteed. But because of the way the cap works, you still have to differentiate between amateurized bonus and, and kind of every year salary. Um, so it still puts them nearly at the top. And if you look at kind of, you know, average per year, that there's a couple different ways to slice it. Point is, it would be a very rich contract for a safety. The the thing that I would say here is that the positional value for safety for the type of defense we want to run skews towards needing that kind of player. What you want to do is you want to gain efficiencies in how you pay people. And in this defensive scheme, if you're doing things right, I don't think you're going to be efficient in in getting a safety you're gonna have to pay a safety that much money eventually why not have it be the best prospect at the safety position that people are comparing to ed reed that people are comparing to these you know kind of hall of fame players if you're gonna pay money for someone and and you're gonna get kind of the best years of their career then why not do it with with malik hooker is kind of where i go it does scare me a little bit not gonna lie i would rather this is where you kind of make the argument for maybe marshawn Lattimore here because even at 29, 30 million overall guarantee that still puts them at like, you know, it puts them outside the top 15 in terms of guaranteed money for a corner because corners are just valued more yep. in, in the NFL. So, so yeah, so that's where maybe you can make the argument for Marshawn Lattimore. And I wouldn't be terribly upset if that happened either, but I still think Malik hookers is pretty special. Yeah. I think, I mean, again, it, it, he does seem to have kind of, uh, and I don't always like this term, but, you know, upside of somebody like uh, an Ed Reed, you know, uh, an Earl Thomas. I mean, you look at the the ball skills that he had. He had seven picks on just 41 targets last year, uh, which was the most in the country among safeties. And, you know, I, I think that's something that you really like to see from guys, because I, I don't know that that always develops. Right. That's not something you can kind of clean up a guy's technique. You can improve his footwork, you know, once you get him with uh, kind of NFL coaching staffs and and all that. But you know, the ability to just go to be able to track the ball in the air and, and to go get it uh, from that center field position. You know, I don't know how much of that you can teach. And he, he definitely seems to have those sort of skills. You know, we didn't get the you'd like to be able to check that athleticism box. You know, we talked about kind of pairing the production with the athleticism, especially at the top there. 
because of the injury, we didn't get to see any of the combine stuff for him or getting those measurables. So, you know, we don't have the the exact data there, but I think it's pretty evident from the, the range that you see on tape that uh, this guy's a pretty, pretty special athlete as well. So the thing that's astounding to me is that on those seven picks, he had 181 return yards, which is a 25.9 average and three touchdowns. That's absurd. That's stupid. I mean, that's basically like that is full on kick return on average every time he picks a football. And part of that has to do with where he, he makes the pick too, but sure. But, but he still has very quick feet. He's got ridiculous agility. He's got vision. And, and the, he's, it's just kind of it's, – it's absurd. It really is. I mean that's stupid. You think to yourself, oh, okay, you averaged 25.9. You probably had like three picks. But he did it on, <laughs> se- he, he did it on seven picks and three full-on touchdown returns. I mean that's, that's one of the reasons that he's one of my draft crushes is because I just think that he is – his athleticism shows up on tape. He's got the kind of ball skills this defense is going to need. He's going to set that position up. And if the question is what about Jimmy Ward – well, Jimmy Ward can provide some depth so that if Malik Hooker does indeed go down, you're not lost because you don't have another of that type of player in your secondary. Yeah, I think the the return stuff is is a really good point because that's where you start getting into the Ed Reed comparisons, right? Which is always, you know, comparing to to a Hall of Fame player like is is really kind of unfair to a lot of these prospects and, and stuff like that. But you're not necessarily saying that he's going to have that type of career. But I mean, that was Ed Reed, right? Was he turned into an offensive player with the ball in his hands? Like once he was able to track down, get his hands on the ball, which was a lot. It was just he was an offensive player with the ball in his hand, right? Like he could make guys miss. He could create big plays in the return. And even if you end up giving up, you know, maybe one or two more plays than than the other guy, like the ability to create those big, big plays, the big turnovers and really flip field position for your team and and do those sorts of things, I think has a, a lot of value in the league. So that makes sense. And, and that actually kind of opens me. So I, I think there is a, a third scenario there that at the, the top, right, that number two, number 34 picks that I would be OK with. I, I so I'm a really big believer in building positions of strength, right? Like I don't I'm not one of the guys that think like, OK, I need to go get kind of one of everything. You know, I need to make sure that I go get a receiver in this class and I need to go get a linebacker at some point And I need to try to fill in pieces all across the roster like I, I would rather go and kind of double down on one or two positions and really make those a priority. And then all of a sudden those positions are strengths, right? Like you look at, I think Aaron Donald is a fantastic example. Like when the Rams drafted him, that was maybe the, the one position that you would point to on their roster. That's like, okay, this position's pretty good, right? This is their relative strength right now. You know, maybe they shouldn't be taking Aaron Donald. Well, it's like, well now that's like something that they can really rely on. If they ever get a quarterback in there, like they can immediately become dangerous because they have that just crazy defensive line that they can really rely on to get after the passer. So I, I think when you look at this draft, DB, like revamping the secondary could really um, be a priority for the 49ers here if they want it to be. So I think you look at taking somebody like Hooker uh, at number two and then pairing him potentially with a Kevin King or with an Akella Witherspoon at number 34. And all of a sudden now you have your free safety in Hooker. You have Rashard Robinson on one at one corner, who again is kind of a taller, longer type of guy that I think we he, both think. I think we both think he's a better fit in this system yeah, than he was in the other system. Absolutely. So you know, if you expect a little bit of just natural development from him going forward, and and you combine that with I think a better scheme fit, 
you, you look at a potentially really good corner there. And then I think, you know, again, King and Weatherspoon both project to be very good fits in this defense. Both of them received Richard Sherman comparisons from the PFF analysis team, you know, in their scouting reports there. So that they're definitely the type of corners that fit this scheme. And then you even look at, you know, Jimmy Ward, you know, playing in the slot. And, and while some might see that as a demotion and kind of a, uh, you know, be a little bit disappointed in that for a former first round pick, like, that number three corner is a starter, basically. Like he's playing, he's somebody that's going to be on the field. 70%. 70, yeah. Like yeah. three out of four snaps nearly. You're you're going to be on the field. He's going to have an opportunity to make an impact. And I do think he's better in the middle of the field, especially in this scheme. He's a he's a better option in the slaughter at safety. Um, so I think you have a strong well, option think, there. If, if you think that he is good enough to play the middle of the field deep, then he's he's good enough to play the middle of the field up closer to the line of scrimmage, right? He's got that he's got that two way go, and and we we've been historically, you know, supportive of Jimmy Ward even when he was in the slot, and we've always said he's been a really good player. Just had a couple of bad games that were on a national stage, and so he would still continue. And I still think that currently he's the best corner on the roster, and and so you you put that guy in the slot. I mean, that's a big deal. Look, look at how a New England destroys people with their slot receivers. Um, the slot corner is a big deal in the NFL, and it's basically a starter. So why not have a starter quality player there? Yeah, I think you pair him. You know, obviously he's had where when he has struggled, it's been against some of the bigger guys, right, that he gets matched up with. Um, and I actually think Eric Reed. I mean, it may only be a season. You know, we don't know whether uh, they're going to choose to kind of extend him, whether he's in the long term plans. But, you know, I was able to do Eric Reed was one of the players that uh, was in the the DB module for the scouting academy. And so he was somebody that I just recently got to spend you know, a lot of time really kind of studying and, and drilling into. And I think he is a quality option in, in the slot, you know, as, against some of those bigger players. Like he can man up tight ends. He's a kind of freak athlete for for a safety. Um, and, you know, he can man up with some of those bigger players that ne- don't necessarily have, you know, the crazy change of direction. Like, you, yeah, you don't want him on Julian Edelman in the slot, but he can go up against some of those bigger slot receivers and the, the, the kind of tight ends that you're going to move out there. And then I think he's also good enough to be, you know, maybe he's not, you know, Cam Chancellor-esque necessarily, you know, quite that uh, level of, of good run defense in the box. But I think he's he's definitely can hold up there. I think he's a good run defender once you get him up close to the line of scrimmage. So all of a sudden you now have with those picks, you know, potentially you, you finally have now a position of strength, something you can rely on. We know the importance of the secondary in the scheme. And I just uh, so I, I, I don't think that's an option hell it may not be the most likely thing you know i don't know we have no idea really what john lynch and and all these new guys are going to look to do we have nothing to kind of base this stuff off of um but i think that scenario makes a lot of sense to me and you can really kind of create a position of strength overnight yeah i think you can i think you can too and if you think of the way the defense looks in that scenario if you do go dbdb you've basically got ward in the slot You've got Rashard Robinson and whatever, you know, Kevin King or Keller Witherspoon starting on, on the outside. And you've got Malik Hooker patrolling the center of the field. I mean, that's a pretty ridiculous back half. And, and then, you know, you, you probably don't have a, a great pass rusher, at least right away. But you, you've got time to build it. And maybe you go edge in, in the third round, I think. Uh, and you maybe are still able to get some positional value there. So. If you look at some of the the way that the others fall out, if you look at DB edge, you've got someone, you know, the front seven really in the scheme does kind of matter a lot. So you've got someone who can get after the passer on the weak side 
and you've got your center patroller. And if you flip it and you do what you wanted, which is, you know, kind of edge DB, then you have a, a more than likely elite kind of edge rusher, edge rusher at the top. And you still get a starting caliber cornerback on the other side. And then you can move Jimmy Ward over to safety. And these two picks, whether they are edge DB, DB edge or DB DB, it's not necessary. This is going to help remake a defense and help make this team strong. And, and then you kind of trust the offense to, to Kyle Shanahan and, and off you go. And I think that makes the most sense for what the 49ers should do, presuming that they stay at two. Yeah, I think the the big thing, you know, I, th- I think there are a lot of people out there that um, are really would be kind of upset about not getting an offensive player, you know, at the top, you know, with it with one of those first two picks and kind of avoiding that. Because, I mean, let's be real, like the 49ers under Balky have kind of neglected offense at the top of the draft for a long time. And so the frustration there is is certainly understandable. But I think the thing you have to really keep in mind is you can't correct all of these flaws in one offseason right they're not going to be able to do everything you're going to still end up with some positions that aren't looking very good and I think when you look at what they did in free agency the focus there was really more on offense right they brought in a bunch of different receivers to to kind of go in there obviously we have the the new situation at quarterback um, and so I think that was really more of a focus for them in free agency and I think while that you know makeup that they have now on offense is isn't going to be a great offense by any by any stretch. I think you combine that with your you know probably superior coach, right? Kyle Shanahan's almost certainly the best coach on the staff, and so you'd expect him to be able to maybe coach up some lesser talent a little bit more than a first time defensive coordinator and Robert Sala. So you give Sala kind of some some better pieces to work with. I think early. And uh, yeah, I, I just think that's the scenario that kind of makes the most sense for me in this offseason. You can look at, you know, day maybe third round, maybe day three more. I think there's, you know, a running back uh, makes sense late. I think, you know, I, I'd like to see them get a tight end. You know, I think there are a couple of guys there yeah. um, that would be I'd be really happy with in the third round, you know, potentially third, fourth round area. So th- th- I don't think they need to ignore offense completely, but I do think with how this class shakes out, defense really needs to be the focus. This is the only other draft crush we haven't mentioned just because of the way we think they should kind of move it in, in the first and second round, but that's going to be our Darius Stewart. This is someone that we talked about a little bit with Matt Waldman, and he's just someone that when you watch him on tape, he is an above average athlete. He's not a burner, um, he, but he did go 4.49 at the combine, you know, 4.49 and I think 4.51. And he's someone who I think is compared to someone like Pierre Garçon, someone who needs a little bit of seasoning, but is a, a, a really a three-level threat. He's fast enough to kind of beat you deep, but is going to be more of that bigger, stronger outside receiver. He's a big after-the-catch guy. Like he's yeah, he, he's he one of the better. Him and Carlos Henderson are kind of the two that you point to usually for getting yards after the catch in this class. He averaged 10.7 yards after the catch per reception, which is the second best among power five wide receivers. I mean, the guy is dangerous with the ball in his hands and he, and it's because of his athleticism, his foot speed. Um, and you know, he's got a little bit of that kind of, I want to hit you in the mouth, you know, feel to him. And, and when you think of Pierre Garcon and and we just did give him a big contract, but he's not going to be, you know, when you think of his age, you really have to start preparing for what life after Pierre is going to be because we both think this team is going to start maybe hopefully if all goes well to compete, not this year and maybe not next year, but really in year three, year three is where you'd really expect them to start competing for, you know, a real deep playoff run. And if that's the case, you got to think to yourself, you know, is Pierre Garçon really going to be the Pierre Garçon in three years that we know today? And, and if you think of someone like an Ardarius Stewart, if he's got a year or two learning under Pierre, 
all of a sudden he becomes the Pierre Garçon of the future in this offense um, when Pierre Garçon, you know, is going to eventually have to retire. Yeah, I think the you know, some may see like Pierre Garçon as, as kind of an unflattering comparison, but I think people have to remember the prospect that Garçon was coming out like, yeah, he's maybe lost some of the athleticism, you know, now that he's up over 30 and, and he's kind of, you know, more relying on that, you know, quote unquote, veteran savviness to, to kind of get open. Um, but this was a guy that was kind of, you know, a big, fast athlete, you know, University of Miami guy like uh, he he was kind of an explosive guy after the draft. And, you know, again, like with Stewart could kind of make things happen after the catch, um, create big plays. So, yeah, I think uh, that would be, you know, it's again, it's hard to know where to fit in some of these receivers and, and uh, whether they are kind of worth going uh, over some of the defensive players. But. Yeah, he's he's certainly a guy that, again, has come up uh, several points, you know, over the course of uh, this process for us and um, is, I think, a, a potentially exciting option there. Yeah, so I think there's there's only one other uh, draft crush, which we haven't mentioned. And, and David, this yeah. is one of yours. Uh, and that's going to be someone that would be a target, I think, if we trade down out of that second pick. But that's going to be Hassan Reddick. Yeah, so I think he's, you know, it's probably uh, a, a big, big reach to to really expect him to be a strong consideration at number two. But I think it's uh, similar to kind of a lot of what we talked about with Lawson, right, where he's kind of an undersized guy. He's 6'1", 237, but that's more what you're looking at at, at that Leo position, and he's kind of a freak athlete, you know, 94th percentile spark score. Um, he does have, you know, depending on the team, um, you know, some people might see him as more of an off the ball guy. Some as more of an edge. I think for the 49ers, it makes a lot of sense to put him at that Leo spot. I mean, he was, you know, third in the entire FBS among edge players in, in terms of pass rushing productivity from the left side. Um, and then I think one thing that I always like to see in him and Lawson, we're both very good at this is, is so PFF will track their uh, pass rush productivity in throws that were released under two and a half seconds and, and half then seconds. over two and a half seconds. And so I think when you look at guys that are getting pressured quickly, right, that that kind of sub two, 2.5, um, that's really, I think, a, a strong indication of how well they're doing early and, and that they're maybe not necessarily guys that are getting a lot of cleanup sacks and kind of, you know, once the coverage is held up, they're, they're getting there late type of thing. It's like these guys are beating their man off the ball, kind of that explosiveness uh, off the line. And so he was seventh. In, in that metric there. Um, and then Carl Lawson was uh, just ahead of him at fifth. So fifth, yeah, yeah, two guys that, that I think can get after the passer quickly and, and really make an impact. Um, even if they're not necessarily given a ton of time to do so. And Jordan Willis is someone who actually on, on that metric, he ranks 60th uh, as opposed to eighth for the plus 2.6. And I think the four verts who Charles McDonald, he's someone that you should definitely follow on Twitter. Um, but he did a write-up of Jordan Willis, and he talked a lot about how it was the scheme in which Jordan Willis played that asked him to do a couple of things that you shouldn't ask kind of a premier pass rusher to do, uh, which is kind of read the tackle, and then once you read the tackle, then kind of react, which I think helps explain why he's got such a terrible sub-2.5 pressure number. And he did show a couple plays where it was, you know, third and long, or it was a, an obvious pass situation, and the defensive call was just to let Jordan Willis go. And that's where he really let his athleticism shine. So that's why I think I think Jordan Willis would be a hell of a steal at 34. And that's kind of the gamble I'm making, right? If I go Malik Hooker, my gamble is that 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 tape with Jordan Willis is going to make people kind of shy away because they don't really know what they're looking at because they don't know K-State's scheme. 
But when you really get someone who has that peace spark and you let him go after the quarterback, you're going to get some positional value there. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, they have a lot of options and it's hard to know, especially at 34, right? Because of kind of the makeup of this class, it, it's it's hard to know what NFL teams are going to kind of decide to make a run on early, right? They, there, there are plenty of scenarios where a lot of these edge players, say, for example, go really early. And then even guys that we think right now seem just kind of where they fall on most big boards and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, okay, it's reasonable to expect them to maybe be there at 34. Like if all of a sudden there's a big run on, on edge rushers and you see, you know, 10 of those guys go in the first round. And then all of a sudden now there's a couple of cornerbacks that didn't go, you know, that, that were really kind of projected to be first round guys, you know, maybe somebody like a Garen Conley, uh, or Marlon Humphrey, or, you know, something like that, that, that are, are kind of guys that right now seem like they're surefire first rounders. But again, we talked about a couple times now, quarterbacks, like some of these positions of weaknesses, they're going to go. Some of these guys are going to get pushed down. So uh, I think regardless of how things shake out, they, they should have a pretty good opportunity to get a very good player at 34. Yeah, I mean, basically the only way that the 49ers, we think, could basically fuck this up is by drafting a quarterback second overall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they, if, if they ignore defense in the first two rounds, that's going to be really for me to, and I, to kind of accept. and i'm looking at a tweet right now from greg gabriel who has you know he's been the scouting director for the bears um you know he's on 670 to score um he's hearing that the 49ers want watson and if cleveland does take trubisky at one then they might still take watson at second overall that was a tweet uh i think from about you know four or five hours ago so i mean that's that's that would be ridiculous that would that would be absolutely ridiculous if, if the 49ers ended up doing that because that's how they could screw this up. Yeah. I mean, I, I get, and it's, it's hard, right? Cause quarterback, you know, you, you don't know, like you don't know with quarterbacks and, and on one hand you want to trust like Kyle Shanahan in that process and being able to develop a quarterback and, and all of those sort of things. Like I, I, you, I can see how you get stuck in that kind of train of thought. Uh, it just, yeah, I just don't think it makes sense uh, to, to really ignore some of those other spots in this. I think I that's know. a smokescreen, too. I think anything you hear about the 49ers wanting a quarterback at two overall has got to be a smokescreen. It's just yeah. going to be to trade out. It's, it has to be. It, it has to. And, and I hope that's the case. Everything they've said to this point really points to them not being in a big hurry to, to, to kind of address that position yeah. this year. I mean, it's always like everything you hear from Lynch and Shanahan is, is basically like, yeah, look, we know quarterback's the most important position. This is a big priority for us. But you know, these other things like we're, we're not going to necessarily go take a guy just to take a guy. There's always that kind of, but, uh, at the end of those statements that, that make you think that they're willing to wait and kind of punt this decision to next off season where I think, you know, then you start looking into, okay, maybe they have cousins available in free agency. I think you're hoping for, uh, what looks to be right now, a stronger quarterback class. Um, so I, I think, yeah, it just, that's, again, this is going to be a two or three year, rebuild right before they really get this roster at a position where it, it can kind of compete and get to the playoffs i think so um the, the fact that they don't have their quarterback of the future right away i don't think is a big deal they have time to get that guy yeah so i think that uh, i think that wraps it up i think ideally when when you think of what what's the kind of endorsed official better rivals thing that we think the niners should do uh it's to go defense uh yeah. in rounds one and two and to do some combination of, you know, edge, DB, DB, edge, DB, DB, 
There's a couple different ways to go, but the basically just don't don't go offense or something stupid. Um, <laughs> just don't don't fuck it up. Don't take a oh my god! Don't take a running back or something uh, up there and just yeah, God. It, yeah, Fournette. Could you imagine? I would. I would. I, yeah. yeah. If, like, if we it, draft if we draft Fournette, the the drunk prospecting is gonna be lit. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know if if we drafted Fournette, it might get canceled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I don't know if I'll be composed enough to make it through. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But it's I'm glad I'm glad it's finally here. I mean, we're again Saturday afternoon right now recording this. Um, you know, four or five days away. You know, from from Thursday and and actually being able to put. It's always nice to just get through this last week, all of the rumors and crap that's going on, and just kind of start put those behind us and, and start focusing on players that are actually going to be uh, on this roster going forward. Well, now I'm going to go get ready to watch some playoff uh, basketball. But before I do that, we've still got a call to action. Uh, we've got to figure out what the hell the call to action is going to be, because at this point um, it's, it's, I mean, it could be hashtag defense. Um, yeah. That's pretty much the only, I mean, that's, I yeah. mean, that's definitely been the theme. Uh, not as uh is funny or uh entertaining i think as usually we like to shoot for with that but i mean <laughs> that's uh certainly been the the theme of the entire episode of the last hour or so so all right well hit if you're at this part of the episode definitely hit us up with hashtag defense thanks again for listening to the wrap-up of what we think the 49ers should do remember there are three other episodes with interviews with matt waldman uh steve palazzolo ha boom uh and uh and now I'm going to forget the third person, Jordan Plocker from Pro Football <laughs> Focus. And uh, and if you are interested in hearing us uh, get rip-roaring drunk, uh, maybe in matching Niners jackets. And uh, I just got a notification, feel- by the way. Mine is delivered. I'm about to go grab it as soon as we finish up here. So you excited. do it. Mine, yeah, mine will be. Uh, mine's going to be here today. Uh, but definitely tune in on draft night. We'll be breaking down uh, the position or whomever it is that we draft. So hopefully you'll tune in on the YouTubes. Uh, and as always, go Niners. I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. <laughs> We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.